RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked to John Carapiet from G Free New Zealand, and he was telling us about the possible change to regulations regarding GMO and that submissions were due by, I think, midnight Friday, just gone 26th of August. So that time has elapsed. And Elvira Demise has been making submissions. She is a former genetic engineering scientist who is part of the Physicians and Scientists for Global Responsibility. She prepared a submission on the Ministry for the Environment's proposed changes to GMO regulations, the ones I've just been referring to. And Elvira joins us on RCR. Elvira, thanks for coming on RCR to tell us about what you've been doing and making submissions and I guess uh, why you decided you you had to do that. So welcome to our radio station. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so we knew that um, those submissions were being called for and we knew that uh, the uh, last day was Friday because John told us about that. So you're one of the submitters. What, What made you want to make submissions and do you think they'll have any impact? Let's start there. What wanted me to make a submission was the fact that the regulations are in place for a very good reason and they're good and they work and there is no reason to change them because this was all about loosening up the regulations. They called it improving the regulations. Now to me, improving regulations would be to make them even more watertight. It wouldn't be to loosen them. I have made submissions in the past, and and years ago I made really comprehensive submissions. This one wasn't as big and comprehensive as some other ones I've done. And I just picked the whole application to bits. I went through it point by point and referenced everything, and I got up and I did, you know, really watertight presentations and asked them some really hard questions. No, straight through. No, You know, they just... It's like... um, this is just, we want to do this, but we'll pretend that we have consulted the public and we've consulted people who actually do know a fair amount. I mean, I'm not necessarily putting myself in that category, but people who know a fair amount about this sort of work and have a, a lot of input and really should be listened to. That seems to be um, just overlooked, as we have found out from the past. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, I kind of figured that might be the answer. So what is your background? So what do you bring to bear when you're making these submissions? Um, I bring to bear that genetic modification is not and never has been a way to, and my, my, my field of expertise is more crop plants and, and you know, gardening stuff. It's not... The answer. The answer is already with us. It's just that genetic modification potentially is a way to make money because you can patent genetic sequences, you can patent all the um, all the stuff that comes next, and you can make vast amounts of money from it. So it, the whole thing is not about improving um, organisms or crops or whatever. The whole thing is about generating income from intellectual property. So we have, we have wonderful crops and the problem, they they keep going back to the fact that, you know, either it's crops or it's human, you know, um, illnesses. Now, a lot of those uh, metabolic illnesses or infectious illnesses, 
And they say the problem is the illness. The problem is the crop. No, the problem is the way we grow the crop or the problem is the way we don't look after ourselves well enough to, in order to be able to prevent these illnesses, you know. And there are so many things that we can do um, with crop health and with human health that can mitigate any need to genetically modify anything, really. I'm of the opinion that it's um, it's it's not at all that I would ever want to advocate for either plant health or human health. You know, you might find that quite extreme, but <laughs> no, not at all. Because <laughs> it seems to me what you're saying. Correct me if I'm wrong. That uh, medical benefit is kind of being used as a Trojan horse here because no one's going to speak against medical benefit, That's right. um, especially the way that that has been propagandized, you know, over the decades, that you don't kind of question anything that could benefit medically. Though in saying that, we've just had a um, genetic-based so-called vaccine, which has supposedly was for medical benefit, hasn't turned out so well, just saying. Just saying, absolutely. Not only has it not turned out so well, it's turned out negatively well. You know, it's it's actually damaged the people, you know, that have taken it to some degree, some degree terribly and some degree mildly. And to some degree, we don't know what's going to happen in the future and we don't know what's going to happen to their germline, in other words, their offspring. And, uh, and, and I was just reading today that now the people... Uh, the stats are showing that about two times as many people who are, are in hospital with COVID who have been jabbed as opposed to unjabbed. So twice yeah. the number of, of people in hospitals. That's that's a rough figure, but, you know, that's what we're looking at. So, so not yeah. as advertised, completely false, safe and effective, a complete, well, some might, might say lie, but, um, but not true, okay, let's say. So it hardly inspires confidence in a loosened regime around GMO. You're absolutely right. And, and what, what I think you're saying and what this whole thing, when I was working in it and I've noticed since and I've noticed in this whole big COVID thing, it's all assumptions. We're assuming that it's safe, so it is. We're assuming that it's effective, so it is. And when they, they interviewed that, you've probably seen that short clip of that woman who was um, executive for Pfizer and Rob Ruggs, the Dutch MEP. Oh, the speed of science. Yes, yes. And, and then and then he said, you know, I want a definitive answer, no ifs and buts. You know, did you show that it prevented transmission? She goes, oh, oh. And, and, you know, she couldn't because they didn't show that it prevented transmission. Well, you know, what is a vaccine for if it doesn't prevent transmission? Well, it's not a vaccine. That, that Even that word was um, co-opted yes. and wrongly used. Right. But you're right. There, I have not seen any direct question along those lines ever answered in a straight way, not one. You know why? Because they can't. They can't. And either they believe this stuff or they're just really good at lying. <laughs> I'd say the latter because how could you not know this? How could you be so stupid and so smart at the same time? So here we have, um, calls right across the board, not only in the industry, but also at political level, because all the, I think, um, there's ACT and there's um, the National Party and, and maybe others, top party, calling for a 
how did you describe it before a loosening or a uh, or an improvement that's right an improvement <laughs> uh, so called in the which again is a 180 degree projection word in this case it seems to me um in this field and and f- for what reason it, 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 they i've heard a few of them say like we're missing out we're losing the race we're a uh, food producing nation and we can't lose this race so therefore it has to be easier the bar has to be lower etc etc does that concern you that that, that politics is so easily won over i i think that politicians are so ignorant they they don't do their research they don't do their reading they don't talk to people who aren't in the industry see if you're in the gmo industry of course you're going to want to reduce the regulatory you know procedures and of course you want to go get things out quicker because then you can um you can get credit for it. You might get a promotion for it. You might get a more, you know, commercial contract. You might get publications out of it. It's all to do with um, money and personal promotion. And you know, they they kind of come across as if there's this consensus in the scientific community that every all scientists think like that. Well, I'll just tell you that when I was doing my PhD in genetic modification, I had a good friend who was a very good botanical scientist, and she was doing taxonomy and she said to me it was quite confrontational at the time but I really appreciate that she said it now she said to me you're not doing research you're just doing product development and I said yeah actually you're probably right you know yeah you're just producing a product for commercialization potential commercialization I think if you talk to you know some really I mean there are some fantastic farmers and growers in New Zealand who are doing you know growing wonderful crops and producing really top quality animals for whatever purpose. And, you know, you can't tell them that things are going to get better with genetic modification. They've got it sorted and they know how to solve problems. And that, you know, part of being a grower and a farmer and a primary producer is, is knowing problems before they happen and knowing what to do with problems. And you've got such a really good toolkit if, if you're a versatile thinking, well-researched, farmer and grower you know and though there's everything in that toolkit and you know there should be sharing of ideas there should be no sort of private intellectual property that you can only access with vast amounts of money so you know it's it's just it's just all wrong it's it's the wrong approach and also what genetic modification has always done is they create a problem they say this is a terrible problem we have the solution and but not so much create a problem, although they can do that too, but they will highlight a problem as if the only answer would be genetic modification, you know, and there is no other way of getting around this, you know. We are well that, that again is speaks to what's happened just recently. No yeah. other alternative. Yeah. Yes, there were, yeah. by the way. Yeah. yeah. You had to actually make them illegal, the yeah. alternatives, to get your thing over the line. Um, so to have so to make such assumptions, because I remember when we talked to John, one of his main concerns was, and I'm, I'm sure it is for the food growing community, that if we if an assumption is made and a mistake is made through that and it gets out and causes problems, we trade on the quality of what we grow, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And it could shoot it down big time. Yep. In one Gosh. go. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, um, you know, foot and mouth. And in, in, in the UK, it was in, in 2007, that was one outbreak, they've had others. It was really um, 
it was water that or some lab effluent that got out and um, into the waterways. There it was, um, and foot and mouth broke out really soon after that, and then it spread like wildfire. And I mean, look what happened. It was just a disaster. You know. Yeah, so that—that's a—it's a very high-stakes game. So, in the submissions that you made that closed off on Friday, what were the main? I mean, I think you said before that you—you you, you sort of went all in, but what were the main points of what you had to say in those submissions? If you were to boil it down, render it down to a few really significant ones. Um, I did say basically that the the regulations are in place because they work and they've worked well to this point in time and the reasons for changing them weren't they weren't scientific reasons they were just um oh it's cumbersome oh it's 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 you know it's a little bit um too much too much time involved in paperwork and and therefore we have a reason to fast track this, you know, to get rid of. Also, the fact that they were talking about self-monitoring, and I know what self-monitoring involves in lab situations because I've seen it, and it's it's just so loose. Why would anyone buy that self-monitoring concept? I mean, everyone knows that you can't have the fox in charge of the hen house. Exactly. Because there are some scientists in this game, and generally there are scientists who are involved in the GM work themselves, who say, we know what we're doing. We know what's safe. We, you can trust us because we, we've experienced, we know how to you know, handle these microorganisms or, or these macroorganisms. And you know, why aren't you trusting us? You know, leave it with us. You know, and that's, that's, what they, that's essentially what they're saying. Leave it with us. We'll deal with it. We can say what's good, what's not. We can say what's low risk, what's high risk, what's medium risk. Now, how do you know your risks if you don't know what's going to happen down the track? You don't. It's all just assumptions. Well, you never take seriously someone who is so overconfident with such little information or future view of the future. You, I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it? You, you wouldn't and you shouldn't. But unfortunately, we've been kind of trained into thinking, well, scientists must know best and doctors must know best. And, and and there are still people, you know, it's hard to believe, but it's true. There are still people who will just go with that and they'll just say, oh, well, you know, my, this scientist said that or this doctor said that, therefore it must be right. Experts. <laughs> so cool. Like I did say in my sub, you know, the, the experts that said the ferrets would solve the rabbit, pro- rabbit problem. Well, I mean, look what the ferrets are doing now, you know, it's just uh, diabolical. And, you know, um, the, uh, every everything that's been introduced in the country to solve one problem has created a problem that's bigger than the first problem, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's happened so many times. So essentially, if 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 it goes to plan for the industry, that will mean what private and public laboratories can make GMO biomedicine or whatever, um, and GMOs without any oversight of a regulator. Is that really essentially what that means? Well, they have um, a number of risk tiers. So risk tier one oh, is yeah. the lowest risk, and then I think two, three, and four, as far as I remember. Um, I did my submission in quite a hurry, so I didn't actually read the full document. I just read the essence of the document of the summary, and I thought, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I just went in with all I could throw at it. But, um, 
basically it's it's like um it's like drivers self-monitoring their speed limit you know a lot of drivers are good it probably would but a lot of drivers wouldn't and it's like say well you know the road rules are in place but you know we trust you to self-monitor your driving and we trust you to self-monitor your you know adherence to any other road signs that there are because you know you're experienced drivers and you know what you're doing <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> so we don't need any policing any anything yeah and yeah. i mean look at how stringent the rules are say for cafes and restaurants with their food production you know and if if you don't um, stick with them, you can get your restaurant or your cafe closed down, just like that. And, you know, things like any food production facility, there are inspectors that come along at regular intervals, and you can get closed down really quickly if you, you know, breach the rules. And that's with anything, really. Any Anything to do with safety in the workplace. Well, you wouldn't close your own cafe down, would you, if it was up to you to do the inspection? Exactly. You'd, you'd pass you it every time. That's right. And you wouldn't necessarily um, do your own health you know, inspections or whatever. You might close down the competition, though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so it's very loose. Absolutely, yeah. The trouble, too, is then who deals with it. If something goes wrong, you know, and they will say low risk, but low risk doesn't mean zero risk. Low risk means I have assumed that it's a low risk. I have decided that it's a low risk, being the scientist or whoever's deciding the risk factor. Therefore, it is... And then say in the small event that something does happen, that small event could lead to something really large. And I'm thinking, say they released accidentally or or otherwise um, an organism that got into the waterways and was very demanding in its use of oxygen. So it took all the oxygen out of the water and that caused the death of, you know, all the other organisms in the rivers or lakes yep. or streams or whatever. I mean, it would be a catastrophe. And you you might not know that about this organism when it's in a lab setting and and it's able to replicate when it gets into the wastewater stream and then it gets into the freshwater. And, I mean, that's just an example. But that is Next a, thing you know, the eels are dead, the little yeah, bugs are yeah. dead, everything. I mean, theoretically, something like that could be possible. Well, not necessarily yeah. oxygen, but any, any sort of... Um, metabolic thing, or it could be really aggressive, um, it just could use up a a mineral in the water or whatever, it it could just really inhibit aquatic life, say, or soil life is another thing too, soil organisms. Well, you'd expect the environmental movement then, including all the government, all the NGOs here and government agencies in that space, to be um, shouting from the rooftop over this, were they? do we know if they have been? Uh, well, not to my knowledge. I haven't been in touch with um, Greenpeace or other environmental organisations. But, I mean, I do, of course, know for, of Claire and John from G3 and yeah. Soil and Health um, have done some good... Well, have the Green Party been saying anything? I could have missed it, but that would be uh, right up their alley, wouldn't what it? What do you think, Paul? <laughs> Probably not, but why not? Why not? Uh, there's a, a real shift in the Green Party now, and um, that's why they're just not talking about their GMO policy in the run-up to this election. Oh, so they tacitly support it? I, you may want to interview someone in the Green Party. Well, yeah, but you'd expect with the philosophical background of that movement. Uh, there was a very strong philosophical background, and, and Jeanette Fitzsimons did some wonderful work. Um, Those days have gone, right? Yeah, Gareth Hughes did some. Uh, Gareth Hughes, I think that's that's right. Stephen yeah, Browning, he's gone. They I were, think, isn't he? Yeah, yeah that's 
Gareth and Stephen have gone. Since then, there's no one who's, none of the MPs who have a real... Um, they're not very green. They're not really green like no, we used to. No, I think say. they've all caught up with um, ideological issues now and, um, right. you know, social issues and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, the green that they know about is the green and the rainbow flag. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's say okay. We'll <laughs> leave that there. And and again, um, I don't want to always go back and beat the drum about what's happened in the last few years. But if we're ma- if we're making points, again, the side effects of those were supposed to have been extremely rare. Now we're down to one in thirty-five. Speaking to your point about not knowing what could happen, because that was supposed to be extremely rare. You could say, oh, anything that happens in the rivers water, that's extremely rare. Like I say, now we're down to extremely rare being, it looks like, one in 35. I mean, that's horrendous. That's not extremely rare. It's, it's definitely not extremely rare. To me, it's extremely common. Um, see, the problem was that none of the the regulatory steps that they should have gone through with a vaccine, which I think normally vaccines take five to ten years, eight to ten years, something like that, up to ten years yeah, before yeah. they're actually allowed to be approved for use. And they didn't have any information, any um, you know, solid large-scale epidemiological information to make those assumptions. They couldn't say it's safe and they couldn't say it's effective because even the short-term Pfizer trials and other um vaccine company trials, they weren't looking good. They weren't looking hopeful and they were manipulated beyond belief. You know, the stats were manipulated and the, yeah, yeah. there were people excluded, you know, once they started having side effects. And yeah, we'll get conveniently take them out of the... Absolutely. Pregnant women, oh, don't worry about that. You know, just... Oh, yeah, it's only the future generations yeah. of a nation in the world, but uh, we won't worry about that. Yeah. Yeah, and and that sort of speaks to the point you're making, and this is how things could end up if it's loose, right? Well, you know what it is, really. I think I think it's a scientific arrogance. I think it's very ego driven. It's like, well, you know, I've done a PhD in genetics, and I've been working in this research for X number of years, and I've got this number of publications. Therefore, I know everything there is to know, and don't you? give me any challenging arguments. Or well, where did their culture come from, Elvira? Because that's anti-science, isn't it? It totally is. Um, you know, when I worked at Lincoln, there were some really lovely people who did ask questions, but they weren't in the genetic modification group. And there were people in other, um, you know, scientific disciplines who really did have some good questions to ask and who asked them. And I, I, I asked them to me. I remember this dinner party I went to when I was, still working at Lincoln, and one of the people there said, oh, I've been reading about what's happening in India with the genetically modified cotton crops. And they were genetically modified with um, BT, which is uh, Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a, a bacterium that produces its own kind of bacterial toxin. And so that used to be used as a spray-on by organic farmers, and it was just a once in a month, say, I don't know, once, once every while, spray on, and then it would um, break down in the sun, so it would be short-term, but it would deal with what's called the cotton bollworm, which is a big, big, um, hungry pest. In the right, gotcha. Crop. And anyway, what happened then was um, the genetic engineers got onto this, and they said, right, we're going to engineer this BT toxin into all our cotton crops, 
and we're going to you know, go over to India and we're going to promote it like crazy and um, and they're going to, you know, buy this expensive C because it was about four or five times more expensive, the C, the GEC for the what's called the BT cotton crops. And, and they will make us some money and they will go home. And what they were selling was um, BT cotton that was engineered to exist in American soils and American crop Oh, I can. I think I know what's coming here. Which was irrigated. Now, yeah. irrigation is fine in developed countries. Irrigation isn't really an option in a lot of developing countries, and it isn't generally an option for Indian cotton farmers. They rely on rain-fed, you know, um, cultivars, and so they've selected for hundreds of top thousands of years. They've selected cultivars that are able to cope with floods and droughts. You know, that they're resilient. And so, of course, um, the BT cotton crops failed on the whole. Some some worked okay, but some failed miserably, which means that, that cotton farmers had no money because they spent all the money on the expensive seed. And they had no crop. No money, no crop. It was essentially a failure. And so there was this huge rate of suicides. Oh, um, dear. Yeah, mm. yeah. And, and the, the most common way, it's really awful to talk about this that was to drink the pesticides um and and you know we didn't hear about this you know no and it's just like this isn't this is what i decided really from that time on i thought this is not the agriculture i want to be part of this is not what i want to be involved in doing and at that point i decided i'm, I'm getting out of here and i started wow. planning my um my route of getting into the arts. So now I'm a musician, music teacher. <laughs> oh, okay, wow. Okay, I didn't know that. Thank and you. And I went to study time. music at Canterbury, then I played in the Christchurch Symphony Orchestra, and then I studied jazz at the jazz school, and I you know, I just did all these um, really creative things, and, and I teach from home now because I was mandated out of school. So oh, you're, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, and I love it because, you know, I can be in my garden all the other time I'm not teaching, so I've got a big garden and I also help with a freedom garden, which is a wee group of us. And then I help two other people on a volunteer basis with their guns. And that's that's the life I want. You know, I make my own um, kombucha, my own cheese, my own crackers, my own vinegar, wow. my bread. It's like this that's is really a good cool. Life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, talk about life after that. Yeah. Um, okay, so you know, it sounds a bit depressing actually, because you can see which way it's going, and they don't listen. They no. don't. Um, they they kind of just make it a, a charade to to be able to check off the box that says yeah we consulted. Um, so I guess we wait, do we? Well, we hope it doesn't happen. But for the story of some GMOs leaked out and I don't know dissolving all the oxygen in the rivers and streams of New Zealand or something like that. Well, that's a particular. It's scenario. likely. It's a lot more likely. Yeah. It's by the sounds of things under uh, these changes, these improvements. The not right. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think uh, we're. I mean, I am sort of aware of all the people, virtually all the people, most of the people in New Zealand who have been pushing back against genetic modification. A lot of those people are farmers and growers too. Boy, are they not? Modest. Yeah, and yeah, I, is there fundamentally a problem? Because there has to be a really big problem to modify the long-established ways of doing things, especially if they well, substantially work. We we have to be facing down some kind of emergency. We're not, though, are we? Well, even if we were facing down emergency, genetic modification has never been the answer. It's never proven itself to be the saviour of 
yeah. you know, humanity, of crops, of whatever. Um, the answers have always been there. I, I don't know if you're familiar with this thing called Four Thieves Vinegar. Have you heard of that? No, I, I haven't, please, okay. but I'm curious I, now. It's a story, um, well, it's not, it's not a story, it's, a, it's, a, it's vinegar that's full of herbs and spices. And the legend goes, the historical story goes, and there are various incarnations of the story, that thieves used to drink it before they went into the houses of people who had, had died or were dying of the plague. And that would prevent them from catching the plague. And so they would just go around the houses and rob all the houses, but they'd drink the vinegar first. Okay. <laughs> They've yeah. always been, there's always been herbal remedies. They've always been food remedies. They've always been, always been fermented and cultivated, you know, you know, vinegars and all sorts of stuff like that, that are incredibly good at looking, you know, boosting our immunity and basically being able to um, get rid of infection before it starts or after it starts, you know. There's always a solution that is documented in historical records. It's just that they've almost, well, not almost, they've chosen to erase or try, try unfortunately we have this thing called the internet, they've chosen to try and, um, you know, get rid of everything that was ever good, helpful, useful, you know, even heritage varieties of old apples are full of antioxidants and flavonoids and anthocyanins and goodness knows what else. Mm. It doesn't even have a name yet because we don't even know about it yet. You know, <laughs> that, that prevent disease and help you cure from cancer or prevent cancer, you know, all sorts of things. And yet, what do they do? Nah, nah, we don't need that. Well, there's no money in it, Elvira. No, exactly. That would be the reason, surely. Exactly. You got it. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. I think we've got a pretty good uh, view of that. I want to thank you for coming on RCR and, and telling us uh, about your experience and um, and giving us some background into the submissions that you made and what it all means, Elvira Demise. So thank you for coming on RCR. Let's see what happens, and we may chat again. Thank you. Thanks so much. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.